Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm a speech-language pathologist and assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. In this episode, I talk to Maya Henry about the treatment of aphasia in persons with primary progressive aphasia. Maya is a speech-language pathologist by training. She did her master's and doctoral work at the University of Arizona in the lab of Dr. Paige Beeson, and later completed her postdoctoral training in the lab of Dr. Maria Luisa Gorno-Tempini at the UCSF Memory and Aging Center. Currently, Maya is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Texas in Austin, where she's the director of the Aphasia Research and Treatment Lab. Maya's research interests lie in the nature and treatment of aphasia and related neurogenic communication disorders, with a special focus on primary progressive aphasia. To start our conversation, I asked Maya how she became interested in speech-language pathology. Well, I initially was a linguistics student. I have an undergraduate degree in linguistics, so I was always interested in language. And uh, as a senior undergraduate, I took a course called Language and the Brain with Harvey Sussman here at the University of Texas and learned about aphasia for the first time. And uh, that semester graduated from UT with my degree in linguistics. And um, in addition to not exactly seeing lots of job opportunities for <laughs> linguists out there, um, I also kept returning to this idea of wanting to ground my understanding of the structure of language in real human behavior and also sort of kept returning to um, what I'd learned about aphasia and the an, an actual person with aphasia who, who came to visit that class who just really made an impression on me. I remember watching his struggle to describe a picture and, and, and thinking um, that I... I'd never been more personally touched really by by someone's struggle to communicate and thought, you know, if there's some way for me to take what I've learned about language and try to uh, try to do something helpful and beneficial, then that would that would really be the job for me. And and then learned about speech language pathology as a career um, <clears throat> opportunity and, and immediately started <clears throat> excuse me, looking into graduate schools and and the rest is history well so you you had kind of a early interest in the aphasia neurologically based speech and language problems your research is focused on primary progressive aphasias how did you end up focusing on that topic well i was um I was a graduate student at the University of Arizona, and we had a few individuals with primary progressive aphasia come through the lab that we did some assessment with. I got involved in some treatment work that Dr. Paige Beeson was doing, and then so just sort of was was dabbling and becoming in, increasingly interested. Um, in primary progressive aphasia, it was fascinating to me because we knew so little about it. I mean, this was at a time when there were only two types of progressive aphasia. There were fluent patients and there were non-fluent patients. And we didn't know very much about the specific types of pathology that caused these behavioral profiles. Um, ultimately, when it came time for me to do my dissertation, Audrey Holland suggested that you should never do your dissertation work with a patient population that's difficult to find. So I promptly ignored her advice and <laughs> did a dissertation looking at the relationship between um, certain underlying patterns of atrophy in the brain and behavioral phenotypes. And, and from there, just... Uh, sort of became increasingly interested in, in looking at, learning more about what, what people with PPA have to teach us about how the brain supports speech and language, and in particular about um, how we might help them, because the, the evidence in terms of rehabilitation is, is 
growing, but is very modest compared to what we've learned, the, the body of literature um, it, relating to stroke aphasia yeah. and treatment. Yeah. So, so you, you've mentioned that um, some time ago the, the, the categories of primary progressive aphasia were limited, and they've evolved over time. Could you give us, for listeners who may not be familiar with the latest kind of diagnostic categories, um, could you go through and describe those to, for us real quick? Sure. So there's, there's not... Uh, 100% agreement, of course, across clinical professionals, um, and and there's still a variety of of terminology floating around. But in 2011, there was a consensus paper published, um, spearheaded by Dr. Mary Lugorno Timpini, um, where uh, international group of clinicians came together and decided on some consensus criteria for diagnosis and broadly agreed on three different variants, clinical variants of primary progressive aphasia. Um, those are the non-fluent variant, uh, non-fluent agrammatic variant. Um, those patients have uh, impaired motor speech, so apraxia of speech and or uh, difficulty with syntax and grammar. Um, that's associated with frontoinsular atrophy in the left hemisphere. And at autopsy, those patients tend to have um, tauopathies. The semantic variant of primary progressive aphasia, um, this is also called semantic dementia and was referred to as semantic dementia before the new terminology sort of came about. Um, those patients have a core loss of conceptual knowledge so to call them aphasic is not 100% accurate, although we certainly see linguistic deficits. We see uh, difficulty with naming, so a profound difficulty with naming, also with single word comprehension. Uh, but they also have uh, loss of object knowledge, so they not only can't name and comprehend words, but ultimately they have difficulty even recognizing objects and people. Um, and, and that behavioral pattern is associated typically with left greater than right anterior temporal lobe atrophy, although these patients are uh, what we call bitemporal. In most cases, there's some degree of right anterior temporal lobe atrophy as well, and we actually do see some patients with predominantly right atrophy with a slightly different clinical picture. Um, the, the last variant to be really clinically identified um, and identified in the research literature is, is the logopenic variant. That's a not very helpful term from neurology that just means a paucity of output, so not <laughs> saying very much. And these patients were originally lumped in with the non-fluent agrammatic patients, um, just sort of in this uh, bigger group of less fluent patients. Um, we've learned more and more about them. They seem to have uh, primarily a phonological <coughs> impairment that affects word retrieval. Um, they tend to have long pauses for finding words. Some, but not all, of these patients have phonological paraphasias, and they have difficulty with phonological short-term memory, so they have trouble with repetition. They've been described as looking kind of like conduction aphasia patients, and they have... Um, typically temporoparietal atrophy in the left hemisphere. Um, this, this behavioral profile is more often than not associated with Alzheimer's pathology at aut autopsy. So this seems to be kind of an atypical variant of, of Alzheimer's disease. And I, I didn't mention the semantic variant of PPA also tends to be um, associated with a specific pathology underlyingly, um, and that is, uh, in, in many cases, TDP43 proteinopathy. Um, there's certainly not a one-to-one -one correspondence between these pathological entities and these behavioral subtypes. Um, and I should mention, uh, just because all of this three-letter terminology seems to get really confusing, um, the, the non-fluent and semantic variants are lumped together under the umbrella of frontotemporal dementia, or FTD. 
um, whereas the logopenic variant is not. But they're all focal dementias. That's right. So they tend to be um, caused by relatively focal atrophy of speech and language networks. And uh, what we see is that um, there seems to be some kind of vulnerability to, to speech and language regions in these patients. So these are these are diseases that could potentially affect any number of parts of the brain, but for whatever reason in these individuals, we see that speech and language regions are affected first and foremost, and that's why behaviorally we see that uh, they present with aphasia before any other cognitive or motor symptomatology emerges. Do you think that uh, we're going to see some further subtyping of the primary progressive aphasias or, for example, an apraxia of speech? Yeah, most definitely. And we already, we're already there. So uh, the non-fluent variant, the non-fluent agrammatic variant, as put forth by the original 2011 consensus criteria, includes people who have um, just a primary apraxia of speech, or people who are only agrammatic, or people who are both. And there certainly are individuals who present with a pure motor speech impairment. And um, those those individuals have been described as primary progressive apraxia of speech. Um, And that's entirely appropriate. So as I said, it, it kind of depends on uh, which clinician you're you're speaking to, and what your purpose is um, in in terms of subclassifying individuals. From a treatment standpoint, what we care about the most is what are the most prominent deficits. What are the mo- What are the the speech and language characteristics that are causing the individual the most um, functional impairment? Those are the things that need to be addressed. And we don't care so much about whether they fit neatly into a particular category. Mm. You mentioned that uh, some individuals with semantic dementia or this anterior temporal lobe atrophy, it's more pronounced on the right. Yeah. Um, do we see the similar things when we think about non-fluent uh, primary progressive aphasia and logopenic? In other words, that their right hemisphere variants of those? Not so much. Um, The temporal lobe variant is sort of unique in that regard. I mean, we certainly get FTD patients who have bilateral frontal atrophy or Alzheimer's patients who have bilateral temporoparietal atrophy. They don't present as primarily aphasic, so we don't we don't tend to call them primary progressive aphasia. Um, and, the, and the right temporal variant cases certainly do have language impairment. They have trouble with the same kinds of things that we see in semantic dementia. They have trouble with naming. Ultimately, they have trouble with comprehension. But this is in the context of um, a broader picture. They, they, they tend to have uh, difficulty with person and emotion semantics, so that the right anterior temporal lobe is also a semantic hub, or so we think, but but potentially uh, responsible for su- supporting a different kind of semantic information. Like I said, person and emotion semantics. And so we see behavioral disturbances in individuals with the right temporal variant uh, before we see those those language characteristics emerge. Mm. They tend to be apathetic, they lack in empathy, they have, they have trouble with, um, with person-specific knowledge, so with, with recognizing people. Um, sometimes they're described erroneously as prosopagnosic. It's not a face, it's not a visual processing problem in the sense that they're, they're truly having trouble processing faces visually, but they, they've actually lost the concept of, of P 
people and have tr- particular difficulty with uh, with recognizing and naming, you know, famous people, etc. Yeah, I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit. We, you know, we're going to talk about treatment later, but yeah, you know, as 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 a speech pathologist, I think we're fairly comfortable treating and thinking about left hemisphere semantics, but I don't think it's nearly we don't think nearly as much or as frequently about right hemisphere semantics and treating that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to admit, I've never had somebody with really predominantly right hemisphere semantic dementia referred to me. Yeah. Um, is that is that happening? Are they getting referred? Yeah. You know, I think with people... Just as, just as we see with people who have right hemisphere damage caused by other etiologies, so individuals with stroke or brain injury affecting the right hemisphere, the deficits can be somewhat more subtle, um, harder to identify. Families may think that a person has had a change in personality mm. um, rather than sort of a frank neurological problem. So I think these individuals may be getting referred later. And just as we see in, in behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia, often by the time we see these individuals, um, the behavioral issues may be more of an issue in terms of their ability to function than the speech and language difficulties. And there's not a good... There's, there's really virtually no literature addressing treatment for the, the, the kind of behavioral deficits that we see in right temporal variant. Mm-hmm. Um, these, these individuals often are anosognosic as well, and so mm-hmm. that, of course, presents um, particular difficulty in terms of trying to think about treatment and, and what direction you would even go. Yeah, similar problems with referrals of uh, right hemisphere stroke patients, I think under-referred, probably a lot of the similar issues. Uh, getting back to the different subtypes of PPA, do individuals typically fit neatly into these categories, or is it can it be quite messy? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know about... I, I would say typically they do, Um Although I take a perhaps a broader lens um, than than some clinicians um, in terms of classification of of patients, um, for me it's very important to think about their history. So we we see individuals who come to clinic or come to a research project. Um, at varying stages where they may or may not be relatively pure in terms of their symptomatology. And what we're interested in is is trying to discover whether they were at some point. So so do they, first of all, do they fit primary progressive aphasia um, diagnosis at all? So were the speech and language symptoms uh, the first to present um, were they and do they continue to be the most prominent? And then it, in terms of thinking about further subcategorizing individuals, um, I'm interested in hearing from the, the person with PPA and also their family and caregivers about sort of what the early pattern was and getting my hands on early clinical reports if there were any, particularly if the case doesn't seem particularly pure any longer. So this is probably my long-winded way of saying that by the time we see a lot of people, they, the, the clinical picture has become a little bit more cloudy, um, especially if, so in the mild to moderate stages, they may fit more cleanly into a specific category. And as they progress, um, we see the emergence of concomitant cognitive and motor symptomatology that can cloud the picture. And certainly in some cases, we see overlapping clinical features sort of across clinical variants, which would, which would make it harder to put them into a specific bin. Uh, we always 
when, when we can collect neuroimaging, which is very helpful in terms of helping us to think about um, the correspondence kind of between the, the primary locus of damage in the brain, um, even if atrophy has spread, when you look at images, you can see, you can usually see where it all began. And, mm. and that's helpful uh, because it, it, in most cases, corresponds with what we think were the first and most prominent behavioral features, speech and language features. So when you think about it that way, when you think about taking into account not only the current presentation, but also the, if you have the information, the, the clinical picture as it first presented and as it evolved over time, and certainly if you're able to take into consideration um, structural neuroimaging, I think most of the individuals that I see do fit into a certain category. Now, with that said, we have, so I probably have 25 people that we've, that we, that are now or will be published treatment cases, and only two of those we called PPA-NOS. So we said, this really, it doesn't fit neatly into a specific clinical pattern. Um, the, the treatment approach uh, was was beneficial regardless. So again, we didn't particular. It didn't bother us that we couldn't neatly classify them, um, but they're they're certainly of interest to us because they don't neatly fit. So, I I do think that these um, clinical subtypes are useful that they reflect reality. But certainly, we have people who don't fit. Um, and those that may be because of a mixed pathological profile. So somebody may have an FTD pathology plus Alzheimer's pathology. Um, sometimes the, if, if people have a, um, if there's a, a genetic component, a clear genetic component, then those cases can present um, as mixed cases sometimes. Um, so yes. I, I think the, the clinical subtypes are real, but there are certainly exceptions. With the mixed pathology, because the PPAs are often kind of early onset dementias, um, seems like you would less likely to see this mixture of tau pathies and Alzheimer's disease. But is there, is there late onset PPA too? And so we might get more of these mixed pathologies. Yeah. So the we have people who present in their fifties, and we have people who present in their eighties. Um, that's an interesting question in terms of whether uh, people who present later or who develop PPA later may be more likely to have mixed pathology. I don't. I don't know that anybody's ever looked at that, and um, it's something that with the large cohort at, at UCSF, they, they may actually ultimately be able to look at, the, you know, following cases longitudinally and ultimately to autopsy. It's a very interesting question. Um, just anecdotally, it seems to me like the, the older individuals tend to have non-fluent primary progressive aphasia. I don't know that that bears out across clinical sites, um, but we certainly have people in, <clears throat> excuse me, in their 80s who have the non-fluent agrammatic variant. Yeah. What's, uh, moving just a little forward here, what's the, what is the role of the speech pathologist in assessment of these individuals with PPA? And maybe more specifically, What's their role in helping to come to a diagnosis? I think speech pathologists play a really important role in, in helping to come to a diagnosis. Um, the neurology community has become increasingly savvy at identifying people with primary progressive aphasia and referring them for services, but there are still many, many occasions where people, 
where where a nurse a neurologist and even a neuropsychologist may have seen an individual and may have um, some idea that this is kind of a dementia syndrome but and that there's a prominent language component um, but but the there's still some questions in terms of finalizing the diagnosis so the individual may be referred to speech pathology to really flesh out the speech and language features I remember giving kind of an in-service to a group of neurologists once and talking about specific speech and language features that we see in different kinds of dementia and in primary progressive aphasia. And I said, well, of course you all, you know, you all know this, you know about different types of dysarthria versus apraxia of speech versus phonological paraphasias. And they said, oh no, we don't. We think this is really hard. <laughs> I, I found that sort of heartening. This was a really, really prominent neurologist who said, we think this is really hard. And so uh, individuals with a, with a language prominent dementia are, are, I think, often referred to speech pathology to really help pin down the speech and language features and certainly to try to determine whether this is in fact PPA relative to some other type of sort of more global dementia, um, and, and to think about, of course, whether there's something that might be done in terms of treatment. You know, I've certainly noticed over the years more and more referrals for individuals with PPA. Uh, when I started practicing in the early 90s, they weren't there. Mm-hmm. And I understand that uh, these PPAs have kind of really just really been described more fully starting in maybe what has been the 1980s, early 80s? 80s and 90s, yeah. Yeah. Is it your sense that we're seeing more of these referrals? I really think so. Um, I think there are a number of factors there. I think they're being... As I said, the, the neurology community is, is better at recognizing these patients when they see them, um, but there's, there's a greater understanding for the, the need for these folks to be seen by speech pathologists as well. I, I found it very frustrating when I first started working in progressive aphasia that so, so many, the vast majority of the people who came to be involved in research projects had never been referred to speech-language pathology. Now, if they'd had ALS, they would have been referred to speech-language pathology. So it just made no sense to me. Um, I think there's been a real pessimism on the part of the clinical community, and that is neurologists, but also speech-language pathologists ourselves Mm. um, in terms of whether there's even a role for us to play in diagnosis and management of primary progressive aphasia. And I think that there's been a real shift in that regard. I think that um, there's more broad recognition that there is a role for us to play. Um, There is a, um, I think, a, a softening of that pessimism, although it's certainly still there. Yeah, I remember maybe four or five years ago having a conversation with a neurobehavioralist, and he said that he he stopped or he became much more conservative about referring his PPA patients to speech pathologists because what he was finding was that, A, a lot of the therapists out there really weren't up to date on um, understanding these patients. B, on the speech pathologist part, there was some, I think you called it therapeutic nihilism in one of your papers, right? This kind of skepticism. And these, you know, in basically what this resulted in is patients tended to get discharged quite soon. Um, And that, that frustrated him. But Let's move on and talk about treatment. Is there, should we be skeptical? I think that there is plenty of evidence right now 
indicating that we absolutely should work with people who have primary progressive aphasia and that treatment has robust, even lasting effects in these individuals and that there are treatment approaches that are appropriate across the continuum. So whether we identify them at their very mildest stage or when they are no longer able to speak. Mm. Um, so I, I, without hesitation, say that there's absolutely a reason to see these patients and we absolutely can do something for them. You know, it's interesting because looking back over some of your research, some of those subjects have made really uh, considerable improvements. And when I was looking at their data, it seemed like improvements that we don't often see with in stroke-based aphasia at the chronic stage. Do persons with PPA, and I know this is a moving target, right, because they're progressing and they're at different stages, but do persons with PPA respond to treatment in any different ways than stroke-based patients, or is it pretty much the same, and so therefore we can take the the literature on stroke-based aphasia and we can port it over to thinking about treating PPA, making some predictions about how people will respond to treatment? I don't think there's anything fundamentally different about the approach that we take at a given point in time to working with people with PPA. Um, and I say this to clinicians who, who contact me all the time saying, I don't have any experience with PPA. I don't know if I can do this. And I say, do you have experience with aphasia? Do you have experience with apraxia of speech? Do you have experience with thinking about how to make treatment maximally functionally beneficial right now? for your clients? And they, of course, say, well, yes. And then I say, well, then you know what you're doing. Um, and, and so if you look at the treatment approaches that we use, uh, so the, the lexical retrieval training approaches and now in non-fluent patients, we're using, um, we're using a, a type of script training. These are, these are not, we have not reinvented the wheel here. Uh, these are tried and true approaches from, from aphasia caused by stroke. I think the real difference that comes into play is the fact that as clinicians, we have to think about at this moment, not only where our, our clients and, and patients are, but where they will be tomorrow and the next day and six months from now and a year from now. And so this means you know, if we're working on a more restitutive kind of approach in a milder individual, we, we do want to go ahead and start introducing them to the idea that uh, multimodal communication is beneficial. We're certainly not going to present them with an AAC device uh, mm. when they show up and they just have, you know, a very mild profile. But we, we have to always be forecasting for ourselves and in subtle ways for them. Uh, what we know is is most likely down the road. Right. So doing a little bit like we would do with someone with ALS, even though their speech is intelligible, we may begin to train them on some compensatory skills, maybe even an AAC device, allow them to develop some proficiency at that before they get to that stage. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. But also I think I've read that um, it's also helpful to work on skills that a, a PPA patient might have now simply to keep them intact. Right. Not, not so there it's different than aphasia where we're, we're trying to improve access. There's been some lost access or we've tried, we're doing something restorative. But, right. but maybe in some of those patients we're not restoring, we're just keeping intact. I think that we're doing all of the above. I think that um, there is there there's no doubt that we're we're working on restoration in in some of our patients. We're trying to, for example, bring back uh, 
vocabulary that they have lost. Um, but we may also be working on a set of words that they can still produce reliably. And there are studies that train that that track these sort of prophylactic treatments where you observe um, trained but not lost items and skills, and there does seem to, to be sort of a protective benefit of treatment. So that yes, that's absolutely true. Um, and, and, and we do see that, that patients get better on items that they, skills and, and, and treatment targets that they have lost. Um, but we also see uh, that, that with items that they, again, talking about naming treatment, with items that they could reliably name, if we work on the, those items over time, they, they seem to be protected, whereas items, treatment targets that we don't work on will show the same rate of decline um, as, as other language skills. And that's an important question to answer in terms of can we slow the progression of these uh, symptoms? Mm-hmm. Um, but, it's, but it sounds like it's, it's, they're isolated to the tasks that we're training um, they're isolated to the domain that we're training. At least in our research, we see that if we work on, say we, say we work on confrontation naming, people get better at naming trained items, they get better at naming untrained items, and we, we actually see some improvements on non-confrontation naming, naming tasks. Um, in our script training individuals, we see that they get better at talking about topics that we've trained them on, um, so they get more intelligible and more grammatical, but they also get more intelligible and grammatical on topics that we haven't trained, and they get better on standardized tests that assess um, syntax production. So it's, it's not item-specific, but it seems to be domain-specific learning. That's interesting because it makes sense with, you know, semantically based treatments that you would see kind of this domain based protection. Um, I'm thinking about script based trainings and it's not quite so clear to me why that would be domain level rather than just very item specific. So the, the approach that we use, um, which is sort of, is based on Julius Fridrickson's speech entrainment, mm-hmm. we, we create personalized functional scripts, and we have the individual practice a script at a time, spe- attempting to speak in unison with a video of a healthy speaker for 30 minutes a day. Um, and... Then, it, so it's a largely homework-based treatment. With the clinician in the session, we work on promoting memorization of scripts, but also conversational usage, and we work on targeted articulation practice and strategies for articulation in the individuals who have motor speech impairment, and they almost all do in our study. So we're working on again, sort of tried and true approaches from the motor speech realm where we're teaching people to over-articulate and to syllabify longer words. And those are very generalizable strategies in terms of improved articulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, on the, the syntax side, I was surprised to see that people become more grammatical for untrained topics. And I was surprised to see that people got better on the Northwestern anagram test. Uh, But this does suggest that there is some sort of stimulation happening at a more general syntactic level um, that's allowing this more broad improvement. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned a couple times using tried and true methods. One, one of the methods that you've described in your treatment research that's not quite so tried and true is this generative naming. Mm-hmm. 
uh, task, and that's shown up in a number of your uh, treatment studies. Can you just describe it a little bit, how it works and the, the rationale behind it? Sure. So this is really Paige Beeson's work at the University of Arizona, and I had the privilege to be involved um, as a graduate student. Um, Dr. Beeson got a small grant to, to look at using generative naming tasks in individuals with primary progressive aphasia to promote word retrieval. I remember thinking at the time, wow, that sounds kind of like a terrible idea to me um, because it seemed like such a non-functional task. And, um, you know, all of the other word retrieval training approaches that that Dr. Beeson and I had, had uh, undertaken together had been so functional. So always attempting to train people to to use strategies that they could then carry over into conversation. So, you know, semantic circumlocution, uh, retrieving part word phonology and orthography to to try to self-cue. So what on earth are we doing um, training individuals to name things by category? And, And Dr. Beeson's thought was that this is the most effortful of the naming tasks that we that we could use, and there's this really sort of strategic component, um, and we're we're always so tied to picture naming, which is a very not functional kind of task. So it was a way to depart from from picture naming. And what we found, this is a 2008 study with two individuals with PPA and one with anomic aphasia caused by stroke. We found that at least in a couple of those individuals, they got a lot better at generative naming by category and even showed improvement on categories that we hadn't trained. And interestingly, the stroke patient got a lot better on the BNT as well. So there was generalization to categories that we hadn't trained and also to other types of naming. Then in 2011, we did another study in Pagey's lab with a sort of modified approach where we weren't just asking people to repeatedly generate items within a category, but to really focus on semantic aspects of that task. And and then in in 2013, Rachel King um, and and Paige Beeson and I did another study with sort of a modified approach where we weren't just asking people repeatedly to generate items within a category, but but to, to really focus on semantic aspects of that task and um, grouping together items by semantic relatedness and, and really practicing semantic feature analysis in conjunction with the generative naming tasks. Um, and that, that participant with logopenic PPA also showed really uh, a really strong response to that treatment, and again, a generalized response. And and we were lucky enough to be able to do functional neuroimaging with with that particular individual. So just naming, confrontation naming in the scanner. And what we found was a recruitment of uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in the left hemisphere. So we didn't see... Um, a really robust change within the language network, suggesting that the plasticity that was induced by this treatment was really um, sort of recruiting this executive aspect of word retrieval, the strategic search and retrieval of words online, which, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. So um, we're, we're not necessarily rebuilding broken language cortex, but recruiting spared cortical regions to support naming. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've, con- you've contrasted this approach a little bit with some of the literature out there looking at errorless naming treatments for individuals with PPA. Yeah, I think... You know, there's there's certainly a place for for errorless learning, and there's some some nice studies uh, looking at errorless learning, particularly in semantic variant of PPA. But um, 
I do think that my approach tends to be to make tasks as effortful as possible, um, for better or worse. And this, this in our in our milder patients, I think, and particularly it seems in our milder logopenic um, participants, this gener the generative naming task. Um, despite the fact that as clinicians we don't like it very much and, and uh, in treatment you pull out the stopwatch and you can see people kind of groan, here we go, we're going to name items in a category again, um, does seem to be particularly potent. Um, I think there's something to that and I am actually, as we're thinking about working with people with a range of severities, um, of primary progressive aphasia and really thinking about what to do with the very mildest of, of people who come to see us and in particular people with the logopenic variant of PPA who, who really do seem to have just trouble with accessing words online. Um, their semantic system is relatively intact. They have, you know, um, good access to part word information uh, orthographic and phonological in many cases, but they they have a hard time with online retrieval of, of words. And, and we even have a very hard time identifying treatment targets that are challenging enough for, you know, if we're going to do the traditional picture naming kind of approach, we end up working on these incredibly low frequency, not terribly functional items like, you know, icicle and uh, mm. uh, gosh, what's another one that came up? Spaceship. I remember, um, you know, meeting with folks in my lab to talk about potential treatment targets. And they ba were basically saying, we can't find words that are hard enough for these very mild patients. And so we started thinking about, well, maybe we need to, to bring generative naming back into the treatment hierarchy. And so now we're starting to, to do more of that again. Mm -hmm. What about group therapy for individuals with PPA? Do you have much experience with that? I, I do. I think that, that group therapy is so important if you can make it happen. Mm. Um, I think that group therapy in primary progressive aphasia poses um, unique challenges. Um, and, and people often ask, well, can you... Can you mix primary progressive aphasia with stroke aphasia in the context of an aphasia group? Um, can you mix different severities of primary progressive aphasia? So people who are mild versus people who are further along. Can you mix people with different subtypes of primary progressive aphasia? Can you put a non-fluent agrammatic individual with a semantic variant individual? And I think a lot of these questions and concerns come about because people don't typically have the critical mass of patients or clients to pull together for a group. I think they have the sense that if they could, they would put, they would create a, a, a PPA group um, that, that could stand alone and not mix individuals with PPA with other people with aphasia, but they just don't have the people. Um, so I, I did, uh, I had PPA groups throughout my postdoctoral experience at UCSF. Um, we had a couple of different groups that met only monthly, um, but I, I came to feel that this was as important as any of the other work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, I remember very well my, well, and actually, you know, I had a PPA group through, throughout the latter part of my doctoral program at the University of Arizona as well. When I was doing my dissertation work, it occurred to me that it would be really nice to have all of these people who didn't know each other that I was working with come together and, and sit down with each other. And, and so we started doing that um, on Saturdays, again, just once a month. But I, I remember... The first PPA group that I ever had, um, I was nervous about how it would go and brought these people who didn't know each other all uh, into a room and sat down and, and we started doing kind of the standard introductions and talk about what's challenging for you. And there were 
so many tears on that day of, yes, sadness, but also happiness at meeting other people who had primary progressive aphasia. These, these individuals were so hungry for that. They, there's, there's such a sense of isolation that comes with this diagnosis because it is more rare. Most everybody knows somebody who's had a stroke. Most everybody knows somebody who has Alzheimer's dementia. Um, hardly anybody knows somebody with primary progressive aphasia. And so the opportunity to bring these people together and let them talk about what they were experiencing, so the, the psychosocial aspect, but also the ability to, just as in our stroke aphasia groups, the ability to, to give people a forum to practice the communication strategies that we're working on in, in individual treatment as a group is really powerful. Um, so, so I do think that there's a huge role for, for group therapy. I, I think that individuals with PPA can go to stroke aphasia groups, but it has to be, I always tell people, you know, you, you, you should try it and see what you think. Um, I say the same thing about Alzheimer's dementia support groups. You should try it and it's not a, it may not be a great fit for you, um, I think that in terms of mixing different subtypes of primary progressive aphasia, I think that's absolutely okay. Mm -hmm. But that mixing different severities of PPA is a really risky proposition. You get people who are very mild in the same room with people who can no longer speak. And for obvious reasons, that could be detrimental to, to both individuals. So I think if possible, if you have a few, even just a pair of people, we did this last week, brought two people together and their spouses together in a different room to just talk with each other one-on-one -on -one, um, because they're local people with primary progressive aphasia and they found it extremely beneficial. Um, we also uh, have intermittent um, teletherapy, group teletherapy sessions where we bring people together in kind of a Skype-like fashion to, hmm. to introduce them to one another. And that's been really helpful. Um, some of these people have then gone on, developed relationships with one another and then gone on to have re relationships with each other completely independently of us, which I think is great. Um, and then at, at UC San Francisco, where we, we have a collaboration with folks there and an ongoing a part of our, pro our research um, our treatment research is housed there. We have we have ongoing groups there that are uh, structured based on severity. So people with who are kind of roughly at the same stage of of PPA come together and meet. And so there are a couple of different groups. Mm. One of the last areas of treatment that I, that I'd like to talk about some is is counseling. And what's your experience been in terms of the role of counseling in working with uh, individuals with PPA, how you approach it? Uh, well, you know, as, as speech pathologists, counseling is a huge part of our job, um, regardless of the diagnosis of the person that we work with. In, in primary progressive aphasia, it's, it's hugely important um, for us to see that as, as a role that we need to play, not only for the person with PPA, but for their families. Um, there's so much misunderstanding of the diagnosis. Uh, I would say that about half of the people that come to me to participate in research don't understand their diagnosis. They don't some of them have not heard it before or, or didn't hear it at, at a time when they were receptive to the information. So I don't ever just assume that someone knows that they have a PPA diagnosis, even though their neurology note says that. I talked to a family member the other day who said that she found out about her father's FTD diagnosis from the Department of Motor Vehicles when <laughs> she went to get his driver's license renewed, she heard from them mm -hmm. that the neurologist had informed them that he had frontotemporal dementia, which I thought was 
kind of astonishing. Even if people have been told that they have primary progressive aphasia, they haven't necessarily, as I said, received the information at a time when they could process it. Um, And they haven't necessarily sat down with somebody who has the time to really try to help them understand what it means in terms of what's going on in their brain and particularly in terms of what it means for the future. I think a lot of individuals, there's a grieving process that comes with a, a neurological diagnosis. Um, in, in people who've had a stroke, it's forced upon them in a, as, a, as a sort of sudden blow. But with primary progressive aphasia, I think people have to gradually come to terms with what's happening to them. And it's an, it's an ongoing process of, of increasing understanding and, and ongoing grieving about what they have lost and what they know that they will lose. And the speech-language pathologist is ideally situated to, to try to help with that process, to answer questions as they come up, to carefully and judiciously provide information at the right time about what the future holds, um, to meet with patients and their families together, sometimes separately, to talk about what's down the road. Um, And this is hugely important. Um, I think people need to plan for the future, and and we are in a a good position to help them do that. You know, we, we can't prognosticate any better than any other clinical professionals, and I never pretend that I know what the future will hold for us for a given individual, but we can certainly uh, try to help them to come to terms with the, the, general, um, the general direction that things might head in terms of their communication and then more broadly their, their cognition, their motor abilities, et cetera. Yeah. There's a lot of sadness involved in working with this population, but you've described some some treatments that help and show some promises. Does that help you deal with working with this population? You've devoted yourself to working with this population, but I, I can imagine that it would be difficult to, to focus on this group if there wasn't some kind of hope. It is, it's really hard to work with people who have primary progressive aphasia because they, they get better and then they get worse and then they get sick and mm. then you lose them. Mm. Um, and I don't, I've never been able to nor wanted to uh, separate the research participant from the person. And, the, and I've been asked many times why I continue to work with a sad group of people, um, I, I think that there is a lot of hope and that we give people not false hope, but, but a sense of empowerment to make the most of the, the, situ- the terrible situation that they find themselves in, um, to take control in a, in a, to the extent that they can in a situation where they have utterly lost control, um, and to focus on what they can still do rather than what they have lost and um, to show that, to help them to see what they are still able to do well. Um, And I think that even if we just think about the very, very finite aspect of what we're doing, the, you know, the, the ability to name 40 words, 40 40 functional vocabulary items post-treatment that they couldn't name pre-treatment. Someone might look at that and think, what is that really worth? Mm. And I look at that and I think, what is the the price of being able to say words now that you couldn't say before? What is is the value of that? And I think it's hugely valuable, not not just because of the vocabulary items, but because of what, um, what the person can see in terms of their own abilities and what they're, what they're still able to do successfully. Um, yeah. I think that's incredibly important. 
Yeah, what's the value of being able to tell your child or your grandchild that you love them? Right. Those three words. And in, right. And, in, you know, so we do sometimes work on, we try to work on whatever vocabulary people want to work on. Mm. And we go into their homes or we, we ask them to use their cameras to take pictures of their things. And we, we want to work on words that are important to them. So, so you're absolutely right. What's, what's the value of being able to talk about the things in your environment with the people that you know and love? Um, and for, for, our, for our script training, we're, te- we're, we're allowing people, in many cases, to tell stories um, that they wouldn't be able to tell. So to talk about their aphasia, to talk about their experiences, to talk about themselves, um, we use we use a, a sort of voice banking to once they're trained up on certain scripts to capture them talking about whatever these things are that they want to mm. talk about, um, and they have that then moving forward. That's interesting that approach of kind of curating some important stories and banking those. I like that idea. Yeah. It's, really, it's really a special process. Um, mm. We spend an inordinate amount of time pre-treatment trying to develop scripts and to tailor them uh, to the individual. And we, we have an ongoing relationship with these with these folks and so we will help them to develop new scripts we have a gentleman who wanted to be able to speak at his daughter's wedding and so he with us developed a script for that very special day and was able to stand up and talk and again you know what's the what's the value of that i think we'd have to ask him but um i'm pretty i'm pretty sure that he thinks it's worth it yeah yeah well maya thank you very much for uh being on this on this uh, podcast with us your work with the PPA is really interesting and you've made a great contribution to this population what what are you working on now what's what's coming in your future in the immediate future well um we're we are working on a number of studies that are they're ready to to hit the press so to speak or so we hope <laughs> um, so the, the treatment with non-fluent agrammatic patients, I think, is really important because there's very, very little research addressing the core uh, motor and linguistic deficits in these individuals um, and no group studies, really. So uh, I think clinicians feel particularly challenged in terms of what to do with those individuals, and, and so I'm hoping that we will have some helpful direction for them with, uh, with this new group study of treatment and non-fluent agrammatic PPA. Um, on the neuroimaging side, we're trying to better understand the structural and functional predictors of who will respond to intervention. So kind of an imaging signature of uh, who will, what, what type of individual will be most responsive to what type of treatment. Um, so looking at volumes in different parts of the brain, looking at the integrity of white matter, looking at resting state, functional connectivity, etc. We and others are starting to look at transcranial direct current stimulation. Um, We haven't done this with any patients yet, but certainly there are other groups at Hopkins and elsewhere who are doing this work with some encouraging results. I think that's an important direction for us to be heading, um, and that my lab will hopefully de- be be heading in the in the nearish future. And then, lastly, um, I think that because there there tends to still be um, ongoing skepticism about the the long term benefits of treatment in primary progressive aphasia, I think it's very important for us to follow people uh, as as far out as possible after Mm. treatment. And so um, we have now a group of more than 10 
participants who've received treatment who we've followed for up to a year post-treatment. So we're, we're getting, we're going to be able to talk about the long-term benefits of intervention, which I think will be really important for clinicians who are trying to get reimbursement for services. Yeah. Um, and part of this picture is trying to understand what the typical rate of decline is in, in different language domains in different variants of progressive aphasia. And so we're looking at, with the help of, of our colleagues at UCSF, Dr. Gorno, Tim Peeney, and others, we're looking at their, their really impressive database of longitudinal um, PPA data to get a sense of what the typical rate of decline for, say, naming is or speech production um, in, in different types of PPA. Then we can compare our treated participants to untreated participants who are seen annually. And we can say at one year post-treatment, where do these people stand relative to people who didn't have therapy? I think be... that will be a particularly powerful tool. Yeah, that would be great. Well, again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please visit www.ancds.org.